the known universe with its heroes and marvels. But what of the darkness? In our modern world, this is where monsters dwell. the tomb of ideas a marvel horror podcast same tomb time same tomb channel i am of course one of your loving and i I do mean that loving co-host james hickson and i'm trey lawson he doesn't love you like i do hey now it's not fair let's not play favorites here and of course you are joining us yet again for our look at the 2021 heroes reborn crossover that's right and we are at roughly the midpoint i think of our coverage here yeah. we're sort of right in the middle of things and if you are just joining us this is an altered version of the marvel universe where the avengers never formed and instead earth's mightiest heroes are the squadron supreme that's right and so as we will get into in this episode in particular part of the fun that some of the creators are having with this are the ways in which a Marvel universe featuring the Squadron Supreme starts to riff on ideas coming from DC Comics. Yes. Because the Squadron are analogs for the Justice League. If you couldn't tell from our intro music. (laughs) And this episode uh, really, really gets into that in particular with sort of the Batman connections, I think. Yeah. So this is a very Nighthawk heavy episode. Right. As we talked about in previous episodes, the main Heroes Reborn miniseries after the first issue starts doing these character specific stories where you get a Hyperion story and a Blur story and and so on. Number five, which we're covering today, is a Nighthawk centric story. But then also two of the tie ins are also Nighthawk centric, at least partially. Yeah. So for those of you who weren't here with us last time on this episode, we are covering Heroes Reborn number five, Marvel Double Action number one, American Knights number one, Squadron Savage number one, and Heroes Reborn number six. That's right. And so we're kind of bookending things with the the main title with the tie in one shot sandwiched in between. But I think these issues do sort of fit together nicely in terms of some of the, if not in terms of chronology, because they do jump around in time, certainly in terms of some of the themes and ideas that this Heroes Reborn event is interested in exploring. That's right. And, you know, this is kind of nice for us because one of the things we talked about, one of the reasons we're doing this crossover is because we read that one issue of Defenders (laughs) and (laughs) we observed how much Kyle Richmond sucked. 
and we want to see right. want to see a non sucky version of Kyle Richmond because he can't suck in every reality, right? There has yeah. to be an Earth in the multiverse where he's cool. And we will talk about if that is this Earth. I think at the end of the episode. <laughs> That's right. But with that said, it's going to be a longer one, guys. So we're going to go ahead and get right into it. We're going to go ahead and do a quick break, and we'll be right back with Heroes Reborn number five right after these messages. Just when you thought it was safe to hear a podcast promo. Brave and bold. Comic books. JL May do 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 brave and the bold do 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 comic books do 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 JL May JL May do 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 brave and the bold do 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 comic books do 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 JL May JL May do 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 brave and the bold do 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 comic books do 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 JL May the annual podcast crossover event celebrating the Justice League is back. And we're covering the 2007 Brave and the Bold series that started with Mark Wade and George freaking Perez and ended with J. Michael Straczynski. Throughout the month of May, participating podcasts will release special episodes on issues in the run. It all kicks off in the Overlooked Dark Knight podcast. Follow the event on social media using the hashtag JLMay2023. Coming this May. JL May do 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 Brave and the Bold do 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 Comic Books do 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 Mephisto Hey! That it? Is that what you want? Things I do for this show. City McDonald's. The time has come for the Gotham Glassware Collection. Get all your favorite characters from the movie Batman Forever, including Batman himself and the Riddler chiseled in high-quality glass. Take a break at McDonald's and collect all four. Just 99 cents each when you buy any McDonald's extra-value meal or any other food purchase. Here you are, sir. Batman. Now I've got him! Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. And our first issue for today is Heroes Reborn number five. Cover date on this is August 2021. The writer is Jason Aaron. The pencils are by, on the first story, R.M. Guerra, with colors by Julia Brusco, letters by Corey Petit, and editors are Martin Biro, Alana Smith, and Tom Brevort. For our second story in the issue, Writer is again Jason Aaron, pencils by Ed McGinnis, inks by Mark Morales, colors Matthew Wilson, letters again Corey Petit, and the editorial team is the same. So, we open outside Ravenscroft, where evidently some sort of mass breakout riot has begun, and the first inclination we get of this is that someone in a Nighthawk costume is firing a shotgun at the police, shouting, I am become the knight. It becomes clear pretty quickly that this is this reality's version of Craven the Hunter doing his best uh, Nighthawk impression, Shades of Craven's Last Hunt here. Yep. And in a trend that will continue, we don't see the fight. But instead, Commissioner Luke Cage is presented with a tied up Craven hanging upside down. Meanwhile, Nighthawk makes his way into the asylum, and we get these very sort of almost movie-style opening credits 
Marvel Comics presents a Heroes Reborn production, Nighthawk in the pageant of the masters of nocturnal artistry. There's writing all over the walls, dead bodies everywhere, and suddenly we jump backward to earlier where Delegate Richmond of DC is speaking in front of the House of Representatives. Um, in the middle of the speech, his watch buzzes, and so he steps to the side, allowing a life model decoy to replace him, while he descends down to his night cave to investigate. Uh, he finds out about the riot, which we just saw in what I guess you could call the pre credit scene, and in the hawk rod, as his former partner Sam called it, he races to the asylum. We flash back to the present, or flash forward to the present, rather, where a bunch of Nighthawks rogues gallery, Bullseye, Sabretooth, the Lizard, Moon Knight. the Black Skull, Moon Knight, yeah, uh, Moon Knight's in there. All are sort of wreaking havoc, and so Nighthawk takes them out one by one. We then flash back to years earlier when Nighthawk remembers when he had a living symbiote suit that he acquired on Battleworld. Black Cat teases him about it. He is freaking out because the suit is alive. We then flash forward to the present and see the Black Skull and the symbiote still wants to be bonded to Nighthawk. And at that point, Deadpool attacks still very much in his pseudo Harley Quinn mode that we discussed in a previous episode. He's got his mallet, uh, in this case a sledgehammer, uh, he's got the diamond motif all over his inmate outfit. Um, Nighthawk makes quick work of him, and he encounters the Green Goblin uh, along with what appears to be the Marvel version of Scarecrow and also the Rhino. And it turns out that the Goblin has Gwen Stacy, a psychiatrist at the asylum, hostage. Um, we find out that Gwen Stacy in this reality is Nightbird, one of Nighthawk's associates, and the Goblin has figured this out. The Goblin drops Stacy seemingly to her death. Nighthawk flashes back to when the Goblin did the same to Sam Wilson, when he dropped Falcon from the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Nighthawk was not able to save him. Here, Nighthawk saves Gwen from the fall, only to find out that she has already been infected with Goblin Serum, and, has, and is slowly going insane. Nighthawk has to fight Stacy. He incapacitates her. The goblin begins beating himself up, determined to die and for Nighthawk to be blamed for it. The goblin encourages Nighthawk to kill him, but Nighthawk does not. And after the riot, Nighthawk returns to the cave where he realizes that there's one inmate missing, Maya Lopez, AKA Echo, former soldier for the Kingpin. And he realizes that she was broken out by Blade and a man with a star-spangled shield. Like, there's a scene there. Let's talk about the initial story first. Um, sure. Yeah, there's a lot with just this section. So, yes. <laughs> so, it's very clear this is like a takeoff of Arkham Asylum, either the graphic yeah. novel or the, the video game. Right. They're doing a little bit of the video game, a little bit of the Grant Morrison Serious House on Serious Earth. Yeah. Uh, but also a little bit of there was a Dan Slott Arkham Asylum story, too. Yes. Um, and it's kind of meshing all three of those things together. In fact, the only way this could have been better is if they just got like, well, no, Jace Aaron's fine for this. But like, imagine if this had been its own one shot written by Dan yeah. Slott. Yeah, I could see that. 
that would have been fun. It's fun. It, it's it's dark as it should be. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mind the darkness here. For example, you talk about Goblin beating himself up. He doesn't just beat himself up. He pushes the, the like, I guess the Hawkerang or whatever you want to call them. Right. He pushes right. them the, deeper into his eye. Yeah, he basically ruins one of his eyes. Yep. And and later in this in the the event, we'll see he still has that wound. Yeah. It's also a little bit doing killing joke. Yeah. Sort of taking out Nightbird, but in her civilian identity. Mm-hmm. That's killing joke. <laughs> yeah, although Nightbird does survive a little bit better than Barbara did in Killing Joke. Seems like it. Seems like it. It's interesting what they do with Nightbird here. Nightbird in this universe seems like a combination, not just Batman, but also Spider-Man and Captain America a little bit. Uh, you mean Nighthawk? Sorry, Nighthawk. Excuse me. Yeah, 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 absolutely. He's the the politician cover story, like, gives him a little bit of the, the Steve Rogers style in his civilian identity. Mm-hmm. And you're right. He's he's got some Bruce Wayne going on, but especially and we'll get to this when we get to double action. But mm-hmm. but in terms of his supporting cast for his civilian identity, it's very Peter Parker. Yes. Although, as we know, Peter Parker is now the Jimmy Olsen for Hyperion. And right, this brings me right. to another question. Is Ravencroft in New York or is it in Washington, D.C.? That's a good question. So it, one thing that I notice in Heroes Reborn is that it seems like part of the shift of reality moves the the epicenter of the universe from New York City to Washington. Yes. And, and, and I mean, that makes sense if you because all of this seems to involve Colson and Colson is the president. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. That it would all sort of revolve around him. Yeah, that does make sense. But you're right. I don't, I don't think they say precisely where Ravenscroft is. But given that Gwen Stacy works there and also is hanging out with Kyle Richmond a lot, like that suggests she'd be located in D.C. Yeah. And that Luke Cage is there and he's the commissioner in D.C. You know, it's funny. Gwen Stacy is very much used as, a, as the stand in for Barbara Gordon here. But yep. Of course, you know, one of the jobs that Bronze Age Barbara Gordon had. Politician. She was a congresswoman. Yep. Yep. So it's, it's a little bit surprising that Gwen didn't become a congresswoman here. Yeah, well, and yeah, that is interesting. We'll talk more about that when we talk about Nightbird. Yes, yes. Yeah, but but I, I will just say that this is very much, it feels like the Grant Morrison version of Batman. Yes. Like like Nighthawk in this issue would not be out of place on either side of Batman R.I.P., sort of that era of, of Batman stories. I agree. In part, because one of the things Morrison liked doing was putting... Batman in situations where even though he thought he was fully prepared, he had not anticipated everything exactly. Yeah. And that's sort of where we keep finding this version of Nighthawk is that Nighthawk is the hyper competent Batman type of the early to mid 2000s. But the situation is a little bit beyond what he could even come close to anticipating. I can see that. Yeah. And he's not he's not as good at his job as Batman is. Right. Well, and in some ways he can't be because there are things about the universe he's not allowed to know. Yes. Plus, there is the whole superpowers thing. Right. Uh, which honestly makes him a little bit like Moon Knight. Okay. In, in that he his strength, he, he gets stronger as the sun goes down. Yes. So that's the first half of the story. That's that's the, the character-centric 
Nighthawk story, we do have a second half of this issue, which opens with more Nighthawk. <laughs> so we have a very hyperkinetic page where Nighthawk is fighting someone in the Ronin outfit, like classic, like early 2000s Marvel Ronin. They're fighting, they tumble off of the top of Washington Monument. Nighthawk throws some of his Hawkerang growing stars, but Ronan is able to slice through them with his sword. They continue tumbling, and just as Nighthawk is about to swoop down on Ronan, Ronan teleports away. He reappears in Northeast Africa, and as the Ronan suit fades away, it is replaced by T'Challa's Black Panther costume. And our issue ends with T'Challa being confronted by Blade and Steve Rogers. That was a fun reveal. Yeah, and it's, you know, these these second sections of the story, Aaron McGinnis sections, are always shorter. They're just a few pages. But it ties in nicely with what we saw before. Opening with more Nighthawk makes sense. We, we get more of what the Wakandans are up to, sort of operating under the radar. We saw that first with the Wakandan spaceship picking up Starbrand. Yes. Um, and here and here we get Ronan sort of on some sort of secret mission in Washington, D.C. And it's a clever reveal. The thing with Ronan is anytime Ronan shows up in a Marvel comic, the immediate question is, who is it this time? Yeah, it is the amazing revolving identity. Right. It's an identity that people take on because they need it, not because it, it defines them. I'm trying to think, is there a version of that in the DC universe? I don't know. Probably not. Not really. No. I think that's, and it's a, it's an interesting, uniquely Marvel thing. Cause like in the six one regular six one six, it was Hawkeye echo at one point blade at one point. What's Bla- okay. Blade. Yeah. Okay. Blade was for a minute. Yeah. Mm. You gotta wonder where he got it from. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Um, I like that his katana is made of vibranium. Where does the katana go when he transforms into Black Panther? <laughs> um, the Wakandans independently discovered pen particles. I, I I like to imagine like it's it's like one of those MCU costume changes. Mm-hmm. Like the sword disintegrates and like the the particles that were the sword have got have descended down his arm to become his claws. Yeah, yeah, nano machines or something. Yeah, nano machines. God, Ugh, nano machines. <laughs> I kind of like that Peter Parker doesn't have a nano machine costume anymore. Yeah, no, it's for the best. It is. It really is. <laughs> but yeah, but this is a good issue. It's um I, I know, James, you've not been as much of a fan of the the structure of these issues with the the heavy character driven like single character issues. But I thought this was a good one. They are good individually. It's just the thing is, overall, it's almost like it's an event made entirely of one shots. Yes. Um, And you could almost take what what, the last four pages of each issue and string them all together and have like one prestige format comic. It makes me wonder if maybe that was the idea Mm. at at one point and then it got said, okay, let's extend it to nine issues or seven Mm -hmm. issues. Uh, It's I think seven plus the return one shot. So it it went from, okay, this is going to be a four issue arc to, Hey, we now need it to be seven issues or even not even necessarily editorial driven, but, but it could just be a matter of 
Jason Aaron realizing I'm enjoying writing these this version of Squadron Supreme. I want to dig into that more. And yeah. McGinnis was not available to do additional work because he's already doing the pages for the the actual event stuff. And so that's where the different creative, the revolving creative teams come in. Mm-hmm. It's just I don't know. Like if I were in the editorial chair, which I'm not for for good re- for many reasons, mm-hmm. but I would have done. I would have structured the crossover differently. It's not to say I'm not enjoying the crossover because I am, as we'll talk about in the next issue. But there's one thing. There's one thing I wish. And it's fine without it, but I think it would have made it better if there had been at least one issue, one one shot, call it Heroes Reborn Secret Avengers or something like that, where we actually see what Blade and Steve Rogers are up to in between all this stuff. Yeah, because because ostensibly they are our star characters. There are heroes here. Yep. And yet we almost never see what they're doing. We see the effects of what they have done between issues. Yeah, it's it's a bunch of um, MCU in credit scenes. Sort of. Yeah. They show up there. Let me talk to you about the Avengers. Right. Right. We're putting a team together. Yeah. And so that I think I think you could have done a single one shot to make that happen. And it would have made things a little bit even if it was sort of dead center in the publication run, you know, where we just Mm -hmm. see a little bit of what they've been up to previously, a little bit of what they're doing next. I don't know. Just a little more, because it it does seem weird that for them to be ostensibly our heroes here, they're very much not present in the action. No. And I think it is because once Aaron got into the writing of it, he was having way more fun writing the squadron. And so he kept writing squadron stuff. That's fair. That's fair. It's, you know, hey, Jason Aaron, do you want to write Justice League? Right. (laughs) Because every comic book writer has their Batman story that they would write if they were given Batman. Yes. And Jason Aaron got to write his without being given Batman. Yes. <laughs> to the point where doesn't he bring Nighthawk into the Avengers after this? I think so, yes. We, 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 we see we'll what you there. did there. We see what you <laughs> did there, Jason Aaron. Right, right. As long as he doesn't uh, use this to, to do... A Defenders relaunch or something. I would read that. Jason, Jason Aaron did previously write Doctor Strange too. Pretty sure. <laughs> Trey, you're telling me you wouldn't read that? I, I would. I would read it. I would, I would pick up it. the first issue begrudgingly, and then it would be great, and I would keep reading. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> anyway, I do believe that does do it for Heroes Reborn number five. We're going to take a quick right. break and return with. Marvel double action number one. <laughs> I, I think James is excited for this one. No, no, nah, no, no. <laughs> just, just hurry up, get a break, get a break. <laughs> Do you like spooky movies? Hair raising tales, insightful criticism, judgmental hot takes. Then you're gonna love car business, the horror podcast on the Cinepunks Podcast Network, dedicated to all things weird and spooky. My name is Leo Don. And I'm Justin Lore. And every episode, we're going to tear apart your favorite and not-so-favorite horror movies to get to the bottom of what makes these movies great, or maybe not great. Whether it's The Beyond, Prince of Darkness, or Inseminoid, we dive in on a double feature every episode, and then we talk about it. Some of our insights are great, and sometimes we just complain. So if we have to suffer through it, so do you. Horror Business, available anywhere you find fine podcast products. Thank you. 
week after week, the Cape Crusader copes with the tricky traps of vicious villains. Will the time arrive when the Cape crime fighters come too close to the jaws of death? Holy metronome! What a fate! Punched in the player piano rolls. Watch Batman in color on ABC. Welcome back, Tomb Believers, to our next issue and our look at Hero, the Heroes Reborn crossover. And that, of course, is Marvel Double Action, number one. Writer on this one is Tim Seeley. Penciler is Dan Jurgens. Inker is Scott Hanna. Colorist is Chris Sotomayor. Letter is Corey Petit. Editor is Darren Shane. And... We begin our issue with Nighthawk hanging outside the hospital room window of one Harry Osborne. Harry has recently had a relapse of his drug habit and has OD'd, ending up in the hospital. Sitting by Harry's bedside in the hospital room are two of Nighthawk's alter ego Kyle Richmond's friends in the form of Gwen Stacy and Sam Wilson. Speaking of Kyle Richmond, he, in short order, comes into the room and worries that it was working as his aide that drove Harry to this. But Sam and Gwen say, no, it's not your fault. We all know what pushed Harry to this. And Kyle says, you're right. It's Harry's father, Norman Osborne, who just happens to be in the hall listening to this conversation. Dun, dun, dun. Meanwhile, as they're leaving the hospital, Sam and Kyle agree that it might be time for uh, their alter egos of Nighthawk and the Falcon to figure out who sold Harry that junk and make them regret it. We continue to follow Kyle as he makes his way to the House of Representatives and reflects on the fact that Harry's father, Norman Osborne, is also one of his greatest villains, the Goblin and even found out his secret identity at one point before getting amnesia. He also reflects on how he came to meet Sam Wilson, who became his partner in crime fighting, the Falcon. He's broken from his reverie by the appearance of Greer Grant, who asked him about a possible date that night. But having already made plans with Sam, he has to decline, instead arranging for a lunch date the following day. But that's okay with Greer, because she noticed that Power Princess is his town, and thinks maybe that might be good evening entertainment for her, her alter ego of the Tigra. Meanwhile, Norman Osborne stands by Harry's bedside and reflects that maybe I am the villain. Wait a minute, villain? I am the Goblin, and Kyle Richmond is Nighthawk. Dun dun dun! Again, Kyle Richmond is addressing Congress talking about a bill to restrict the role of the Squadron Supreme, saying that it's great for heroes to save us every now and then, but we can't let heroes dictate our every action. Hearing that Craven the Hunter is freeing all the zoos at the DC Zoo, uh, Kyle Richmond disappears in his office, only to be replaced with LMD, while Nighthawk goes out to fight Craven. Meanwhile, at the Night Cave... Sam Wilson is reflecting on his partnership with Nighthawk until all of a sudden his faithful companion Red Wing explodes into a feathery bloody mess 
as the goblin once again makes his appearance in the night cave, fighting and capturing the falcon. Kyle, that night, returns to the night cave to realize that a battle has taken place and that Falcon has been captured. Fast forward to the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, where the Goblin is holding the Falcon hostage. Nighthawk fights the Goblin and is close to rescuing Sam before the Goblin suddenly flies in and knocks Sam from the top of the bridge. Nighthawk throws a nightline to try to snag Sam before he hits the water, but at just the last minute, as he's about to pull up on the rope, the sun goes down, activating Kyle's superhuman strength. The sudden change in the, in the tension of the rope snaps Sam Wilson's neck, killing the Falcon. Goblin is reveling in his latest victory, and Nighthawk goes wild on him, beating him to a pulp atop a police cruiser. The goblin tries to bring his glider in to stab Nighthawk in the back, but Nighthawk grabs it with one hand, twists the wings off, fashes the wings into a blade, and is about to stab the goblin before he reflects on his earlier words. Justice must always remain in the hands of the people. And says to Mr. Cage, he's all yours. Arrest this murderer. That night, um, a city mourns a hero at a candlelight vigil. While alone in a night cave, Nighthawk decides that he, his power comes to the darkness, and that's where he'll live forevermore. God damn, I love this issue, Trey. Yes. Yes. It's pretty much perfect. Pretty much perfect. It, it so captures a very specific era of both Marvel and DC comics at the same time in no small part because it has Dan Jurgens penciling and and Jurgens is a guy who has his fair amount of experience on, on both sides of, of those two companies. So he knows what he's doing. I mean, don't, don't get wrong. Tim Seeley absolutely understood the assignment. Yes. Yes. Where I, the minute after I read this issue, I tweeted him from the Tomb of Ideas account saying just how much I love this issue. And he told me, thanks a lot. It was really great working with Dan Jurgens, which apparently he's the one who asked Dan Jurgens to come onto the book. Very good. Good, good, good call. <laughs> Correct choice. Correct the, choice. The only way, the only people I could think of that would be an even better fit are mostly either retired or dead. Yeah. Like that you could like if they were still around, you know, you'd you'd make the case for a George Perez or or even a, a Tom Lyle. Yeah. Or even someone like Pat Broderick, maybe like sort of that era of like mid 80s comics with a little who were known for a little bit more of an edge than you necessarily think of with Jerkins. Right. The, the, what this is, is it's a perfect emulation of. Sorry, emulation. Emulation is something different. It's a <laughs> perfect emulation of a Bronze Age comic book. Yes, yes. Like, again, this feels like an actual read. This feels like if I were picking this up for 25 cents, man, I'd be satisfied as a kid. And there are all of these little touches that are just so smart uh, in terms of 
the way that his costume is subtly different because it's in the past. The goblin looks more like the classic green goblin, whereas in Heroes Reborn number six in the present, he looks a little more like Ultimate Goblin. Yeah. The hawk rod in this issue looks a little bit more like the Spider-Mobile mm-hmm. as opposed to the very like 90s Batmobile style hawk rod of the previous issue. Yep. And I don't know if you were tracking them, James, but I was doing my best to pay attention to the editorial notes. (laughs) Starting on the very first page of the comic, when he talks about being back from the Alterniverse, and we're told that was in Squadron Supreme of America number 107. Mm -hmm. Justice League of America, volume one, number 107, is Crisis on Earth X. Nice. In which the Justice League and the Justice Society teamed up with the Freedom Fighters. Very nice. Um, not all of the not all of the notes are as exact as that. But, for example, the Falcon teaming up with Nighthawk for the first time is noted as being Nighthawk number 87. But it was the year 1987 when Jason Todd becomes Robin in, in the post-crisis universe. Nice. So all of the notes are, are in one way or another alluding to or or making reference to mostly DC stuff, in some cases fairly obliquely. And I just I had a lot of fun tracking that. And the relationship with Falcon here, what they're doing with Nighthawk, because Falcon very much is both Falcon as he as he was for Captain America in 616. But he also fills the role of Jason Todd for Batman. But also personality wise is a little bit closer to Dick Grayson. Yeah, because we talked about how uh, the Miles Morales Falcon previously in Young Squadron is very much a Tim Drake character. Yes. And and so they, they kind of, if you're doing a one-to-one Batman comparison, they skipped some steps, but they skipped steps by merging uh, Dick Grayson and uh, Jason Todd together. Exactly. And as we saw with Kyle Richmond, like he is a somewhat darker character than Batman ended up being because he didn't have Dick Grayson and Alfred kind of helping to pull him back. And then Tim completes that process. Right. Right. And and it, you also sort of get the impression that because all of this stuff, the, this entire backstory is an effect of reality manipulation. And so this is continuity that's locked in place for him that he cannot escape. And the, the warping of reality around him won't let him de- develop past this moment of never getting over the loss of the Falcon. Yeah. And just a cute little aside here, we get the night pole. Yep. We get the, you get the idea that the Falcon Nighthawk era was a kind of akin to the 66 Batman TV show up to the point where, you know, when Miles Morales is flashing back in the young squadron series, I didn't talk about it then, but when Nighthawk and Falcon appear on screen, they are almost exactly lifted from the Batman and Robin opening credits for the Batman 66 TV show. Right. Well, it's, it's almost like, I mean, in a lot of ways you talk about stories like the night Gwen Stacy died, which this mm-hmm. is also evoking, right? Yep. That's a book that in a lot of ways marks the turning of the page from silver age to bronze age. Like not that you can put an exact date on that change, but I, I to me, the death of Gwen Stacy is one of those moments that signaled a turn toward Bronze Age storytelling. And mm-hmm. 
And that's sort of what this book is doing is it's telling a story that is transitioning its characters from the happy-go-lucky superheroics of the Silver Age to something darker. It's it's sort of it's going from 1950s and early 60s Batman to Neil Adams and Jim Apera. And we kind of saw that, too, with the Hyperion and the Imperial Guard issue. Absolutely. Uh, it's just here. The art is doing it, too. Yeah. And that's that's the, that's the complaint we had with the Hyperion issue. We're like, we love this issue. And, you know, the artist is doing a great job. But mm-hmm. I wish it was doing more to invoke that era. And, and that's what this issue does. And it's not that Dan Jurgens can only tell stories like this. I mean, obviously, Dan Jurgens knows how to tell a classic, like, Bronze Age or early modern age superhero story. But he's still writing and drawing comics. He did a really awesome Lois and Clark comic for the end of the New 52 era for DC. And it is very <laughs> much a modern Superman comic. But yeah. But he knows what this era of comics is supposed to look like. Like Tim Seeley, Dan Jurgens understood the assignment. Yep. And I find it very interesting that um, Kyle Richmond gets Peter Parker's supporting cast here. Yes. Yes. It makes sense because we've already set up the goblin as his nemesis. It makes sense. Yeah. Because he needed a Joker. But apparently they have all transitioned from New York City to... Washington, D.C. It's right. Well. Right. The only missed of a thing here maybe is that, like, at this point in the story, Luke Cage is already commissioner. Right. He ought to be like a lieutenant or a sergeant or or maybe even a captain. Yeah. And I don't know if it should be. I don't know if it should be George Stacy as commissioner. Although, don't you find it interesting here that George Stacy distrust superheroes in this universe as opposed to the regular 616 he's a big super supporter yeah it is interesting we don't get a lot of context for that like we don't know what the back background of this captain stacy is except he appears to be retired much as he was at this point in spider-man right but this won't be the last time we see this as i'll talk about with the Night Gwen issue. Right. We also get some very subtle stuff with Luke Cage that sets up the next issue. But I guess I'll save that for when we get to the next issue. I mean, unless you have something else to say about Marvel Double Action, except, oh my God, I love it. Which It's I, gorgeous. I, I do. It's, yeah. The, the art is wonderful. The storytelling is a lot of fun. It, it's clever. It's a very smart one shot. And I very much, I want to read Mr. Octavius Goes to Washington. Yeah. Yeah, it's Chef's Kiss, Tim Seeley, Dan Jurgens, everybody worked on the issue. Fantastic job. Yeah. Also, I like that in the fake letters page, the response to one of the letters notes that Captain America hasn't been seen in comics since the Atlas Comics days. Who knows, Jason Aaron? Maybe you'll be the one person to bring him back. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's just cute all the way around. Good stuff. Good, good stuff. Very much so. All right. Two Believers, we're going to take another quick break, and we'll be back with our look at American Knights number one right after these messages. At To The Bat Poles podcast, we look at the many sides of our favorite hero, Batman. For example, Encyclopedia Batman. It's the basic formula for escaping from the Siamese human knot. I just recalled it. Civic Responsibility Batman. 
only a criminal would disguise himself as a licensed bonded guard, yet callously park in front of a fire hydrant. Impish humor, Batman. Look at him, Robin. That crooked bird's going crazy. And more. See if you can identify other sides of the Cape Crusader, and then join us at To The Bat Poles Podcast, available wherever podcasts are found or at tothebatpoles.libsyn.com. Batman has many sides, but can we trust him to save the day? You can be sure if it's Batman. Get ready for serious action. It's Batman at his best. Robin, you can never escape fear. Help! Up in the sky, it's the Bat Signal Jet. Batteries not included. Scared, Scarecrow? Gotta go. I've still got unfinished business. Infrared Batman takes aim at Scarecrow. Fire! The best just got better. Batman. Figures and vehicle each sold separately. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our next issue is another of the Heroes Reborn one-shots. This is American Knights, number one. Uh, Cover date on this is August 2021. Our writer is Paul Grist. Our pencils are by Christopher Allen. Inks by Christopher Allen and Mark Deering. Colorist is Guru EFX. The letters by Corey Petit. The editors are Sarah Brunstad and Tom Brevort. Okay, we begin at night in Washington, D.C. And an older couple is walking down the street as a mugger with a knife is waiting in an alley. But before he can attack, a man in a red suit says, just don't, and beats him up with some baseball bats. That is then followed by a scene taking place at 1.05 a.m., Commissioner Luke Cage is sitting in a dirty jail cell, and a criminal named Richie is put in the cell with him, where they have a little chat. And Luke Cage wants information, and after threatening the the criminal, he seems to imply that some police brutality is about to happen. And we jump forward to 30 minutes later, where Luke Cage has fired up, I guess, the the hawk signal? Yeah, we'll call it the Hawk Signal. (laughs) Nighthawk arrives, as always, taking the commissioner by surprise. And they discuss a meetup that the criminal Turk is having. Cage passes on the information to Nighthawk so he can act on it. And Nighthawk reciprocates by warning the commissioner that he's making enemies. And as he leaves, Luke Cage notices there's a package that's been left behind for him. Meanwhile, the media has been reporting on a new masked vigilante who's been dubbed the Saint because of a distinctive S on his chest. Otherwise, to normal Marvel readers, you might mistake him for the character Daredevil, who doesn't exist in this reality. But put a, put a pin in that. <laughs> Come back to it later. Right. Meanwhile, 7.15 a.m. the next morning, Kirk and his people are talking about how this Saint character is bad for business, and word makes it to Turk that Luke Cage has been putting pressure on Richie, even though they're supposed to... Yeah? Why are they eating soup and salad for breakfast? (laughs) It's the super combo? I get the place is called Great Bowls of Fire, but, like, seriously, wouldn't they have a breakfast menu? Well, it's actually... It's Mama Wong's Dragon Chili. It's a Chinese chili spot. I'm sorry. No. (laughs) We are not doing chili for breakfast. Like, I would eat chili for breakfast. One of, one of them is having a garden salad. Somebody, Some of them have side orders of fries. Not a single person has coffee, even though it's 7 in the morning. 
get this <laughs> devil book away from me. Get just <laughs> like mm, mm. so. Anyway, Kirk finds out that Cage is putting pressure on his men and excuses himself, and he calls in a favor from one of the cops that he has on his payroll, and the cop is very pleased to be told to take out Commissioner Cage. We jump forward to 9.45 a.m., where detectives Jessica Jones and Misty Knight are investigating the brutal beating of a criminal by the saint. Cage expresses his unhappiness with the saint uh, brutalizing criminals like this, to which Misty Knight replies, so how's your pal Nighthawk doing, sir? Mm. (laughs) Um, We get a bit of the old 66. He's a duly deputized member of law enforcement with uh, Nighthawk being practically the badge personified. Side note, did you know that Batman's Gotham Police honorary badge had like a huge freaking amount of like diamonds and stuff in it? Diamonds and other jewels. Yeah, it was platinum. It was a platinum bat-shaped police badge with a bunch mm-hmm. of jewels in it. Probably commissioned with money from the Wayne Foundation. Almost. It did, uh, this is like, you know, early 50s, late 40s Batman. Sure, sure. It's like, but it ends up as a plot element later on because somebody steals it. <laughs> That's funny. Because it's full of valuable. Sorry, tangent. Bat right. tangent. Okay. Go. Yes. Okay. So it turns out the guy that was beaten up by the saint is Lonnie Lincoln, a.k.a. Tombstone, an enforcer for Turk Barrett, who Cage once saw take down six uniformed men. And so he's very surprised that the saint took this guy down single-handedly. Cage orders Jones and Knight to investigate. And we jump forward again to 1025 a.m., where Cage, Knight, and Jones uh, are asking questions at the House of Mephisto, where cleric Matthew Murdoch uh, informs them that, yes, both uh, not just Tombstone, but all of the men who've been assaulted so far do, in fact, frequent this particular church, uh, along with doctors and even police officers, because Mephisto does not judge. Sensing a dead end, the police leave and Murdoch uh, continues doing weird Satanist cleric things. We then find out that the cop who has been uh, tasked with taking out Cage by Turk is a lieutenant. He's appearing on a, a news show with Cage. It's clear they don't get along. And we jump forward again at 4.50 in the afternoon. Knight and Jones check in at the hospital where Tombstone is being held. They run into Cleric Murdoch again as he is leaving. And they find out that Tombstone has been killed. And the only person who'd been in was the priest. And so they begin their chase uh, in search of Murdoch. Later that evening, Cage gets a call at home that they've tracked Murdoch to the House of Mephisto and the situation has escalated. Misty's bionic arm gets busted. Lieutenant Sanders, the shady cop, has taken over and is looking to end it by potentially blowing up the whole building. Um Luke Cage rushes to the scene. Meanwhile, at 1025, Turk's uh, meetup is happening, but Nighthawk arrives and interrupts the proceedings. 1032, Cage arrives on the scene and tries to take over the investigation from Sanders. They have an argument. Luke Cage goes in alone. 1035, Nighthawk is still fighting Turk's men. 
Uh, he takes them out. 1036, Cage enters the house of Mephisto. Um, he identifies himself, and the saint attacks from behind. They fighty, fighty, fight. He gets very angry that Cage keeps calling him the saint because it's not an S, it's a serpent. Mephisto took the form of a serpent when he wanted to experience life in his creation. And and Murdoch is, in fact, a good Satanist, I guess, and, and wants to honor Mephisto. So he's the he's the serpent. He takes off his mask. He confesses to Cage that he could not take hearing people confess their sins over and over again, taking it as a, as justification to go out and commit more sins, that, that by cleaning their slates, they can go out and do it all over again. And so he became the serpent to stop people from being evil. <clears throat> um, at 1042, Nighthawk catches Turk. He snares him with one of his nightlines. And just then Turk shows him the news on his phone that Cage is involved in a standoff at the House of Mephisto. Cage brings out an unarmed Murdoch, and Sanders orders his men to take the shot, even though it's unnecessary. Knight and Jones remind him that the commissioner is in the line of fire, but he orders them to fire anyway. Cage shouts, Sweet Christmas. Murdoch takes the brunt of the hit. Cage appears to be hit in the back a bunch, and then Nighthawk shows up, shielding them both. Cage, amazingly unharmed, marches towards Sanders and says, you're fired, punching him in the face. And then later that night at 11.45 p.m., Cage apologizes to Nighthawk for his losing Turk because he stopped to save Cage instead. And he also thanks Nighthawk for the loan of the body armor. Not exactly bulletproof skin, but close enough. Nighthawk says it was a prototype. I wasn't sure it would work, but hang on to it. I've got a feeling you're going to need it. The end. It's... It's very clearly taking off of books like Gotham Central. It, it's uh, alias Jessica Jones meets Gotham Central. Yeah. With um, maybe a touch of hero, some of the Heroes for Hire books mixed in. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting stuff. It, it's also, it's I mean, just from the title, it's also playing off of the era of Marvel Knights. Yes. The, the yes. street level, like more, more serious, more gritty urban superhero drama. Right. Which which roughly coincided with Gotham Central at DC. <laughs> it's true. And it also gives us more insight into the Church of Mephisto, which we don't really see in a lot of places. Yeah. Why does the church on the page for the Invisible Church remind me so much of Roman Wilbert? You're not wrong. I think it's because the, the two, like, wings of the church on the side, like, the way they curve out like that, it sort of looks... Like, it also has that dome on top that looks sort of like a bridge. So is it just because I've been binging car season three? That's very likely, but it, it, it does look very space jump. Okay. This version of that murder is so weird. It is. It's not even the haircut, although the haircut's atrocious. Uh, he's got so many teeth. <laughs> yeah. Also, it's, it's weird. He's got really piercing green eyes. Yes. It's one of the weird things we see in a serpent costume later is you can see his eyes in the costume. And it's just really weird. It is. It is. Also, this version of Nighthawk, like this era of Nighthawk, is totally the norm breakable Batman. Okay. Where where his cape has like the weird like shoulder points. 
Oh yeah. Like there are points in this book where they don't even hide the Batmanish. Oh no. This one even even more than than double action. This is a Batman book. Yes. Double action. You feel the mashup of Spider-Man and and Batman going into the character and going into the story. Yeah. Here because it's Gotham Knights and because they're riffing on a specific era of Daredevil and Luke Cage comics. That's already very similar to a Batman comic of that time. Yeah. Like, it's less of a Venn diagram and more of overlapping circles. <laughs> <laughs> because things had to be different. Cage and Joe hate each other. Right. But we're formally involved. Yeah. Formally. And we'll see more of Misty Knight in a future installment. Ooh. Speaking of future installments, I just realized who should have been Commissioner of Police in that double action issue. Who's that? Wilson Fisk. Probably. Probably. Yeah. Do do like the Commissioner Loeb kind of thing where he's a little bit corrupt? Yeah. Yeah. Weird, smiling Matt Murdock is creepy. If there's a problem with the issue, it's that, and I guess there's no suspense because as soon as a character dressed as Daredevil shows up and you introduce a character named Matt Murdock, it is apparent that the character named Matt Murdock is the character dressed as Daredevil. Like, I almost expected them to, you know, throw us a swerve. Right, right. And I almost wish they had. Yeah. But the the whole, it's not an S, it's a serpent. That's clever. I like that. It's, it's, it, it, it's very much suffer, suffering Catholic Matt Murdock, except not Catholic. Right. Um, I also like that... And this sort of ties back into uh, a little bit the the double action issue. Uh, Luke Cage was raised Christian in a reality where Christianity is a weird cult. Yep. Um, yep. Which explains why he would shout "Sweet Christmas." <laughs> because I in just double realized. because in double action he shouts "Sweet Christmas." They just did that, so they have an excuse for him to yell "Sweet Christmas." Absolutely, they did. Absolutely. I should get a no prize for pointing that out, honestly. <laughs> um, it's in the mail. <laughs> oh, that is beautiful. I forget. Was it double? It might not have been double action. It might have been uh, Heroes Reborn 6. One of the other appearances of Luke Cage that we've talked about this episode in dialogue, he shouts Sweet Christmas. And, this and thus in, and thus in this thing. issue, they had to explain he is one of the rare people who formerly practiced Christianity. Yep. Yep. That's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, the issue's fine. Yeah, it, it, it's it's fun. I I think it reads well in the context we're reading it. Like this run of Nighthawk centric issues play off of each other well. Yeah. Like I think reading these three issues that we've talked about so far together is the best way to read all three of them because they they collectively add to his corner of this reality in a way that makes each of them more interesting than they'd be on their own. Yes. This one in particular benefits from having already read the other two issues we've talked about. Absolutely. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, I don't know. There's much more to it. I like the characterization of cage here. Like I like this version of Luke cage. Yeah. He is. He's good. The Murdoch stuff is the weakest part. Oh, definitely. Like the serpent is just so lame. And I'm sorry. I know you like it, but. Uh, is is he using baseball bats so that he's technically a Batman? 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Tomb of Ideas, the last episode of Tomb of Ideas. Um, you know, I wouldn't have thought it would end it this way, but I'm kind of glad it did. <laughs> I, I, re- I refuse to apologize. I know you do. Because uh, you know I'm not wrong. Uh, it, it, I guess it kind of makes it, makes his costume look a little bit more homemade. Too. It does. Although there's no there's no way that those bats fit into the billy club holster on his leg. This is true. This is true. But like there's a point here where like he removes the front part of the mask and you can tell it's just like a little party city mask. Yeah. Yeah. Does raise questions as to how he's taking out people like Tombstone. Hit him hard and hit him fast, I guess. Right. Right. Go for the knees. So but yeah, but but as a Nighthawk story, as a Luke Cage story, it's fun. I like the the um the use of the timestamps to move us forward, very sort of procedural style. That I think especially mm-hmm. adds to the the Gotham Central flavor of the book. Definitely. And yeah, and I and I like that Nighthawk is just sort of on the periphery of it. Like we get glimpses of what he's up to throughout the evening, but it's not really his story. No. In fact, you could have done the story without Nighthawk being involved at all. Right. Or or just have it be like the package with the bulletproof vest could have been with a note from Nighthawk, but without him actually appearing. And it's just a day in the life. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. I liked it. Again, probably not my favorite issue from this batch, this episode. But I think it in terms of we've been talking about these these one shots in terms of the way that they seem to be evoking or, or trying to evoke a specific moment in comics history. I think this one does a really good job of capturing that moment of sort of late nineties, early two thousands, Marvel Knights, Gotham central type, gritty urban crime drama storytelling. With that being said, we're going to go ahead and take another quick break and we'll be back with squadron savage. Number one, right after these messages. Yep. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue, in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter, Batman, Doctor Fate, Black Canary, Fire, Ice, Maxwell Lord, Oberon, Captain Marvel, Rocket Red, Captain Adam, Mister Miracle, Guy Gardner, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Nort, and many, many more. Justice League International, Blahaha Podcast. Coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Hello, citizens. I'm taking a holiday from crime fighting in Gotham City. No rest from danger, though, because all around us is that deadly daily danger traffic. I admire the way all you British children triumph over this danger by learning and using the road safety code, like curb drill. Before crossing the road, you stop at the curb, 
Look right, look left, look right again, and then only if the road is clear, walk quickly across. Now, children, how does it go? At the curb, stop. Look right, look left, look right again. If all's clear, walk quickly across. Remember, be smart, be safe. Always do your curb drill. Welcome back, Tomb Believers, to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast, and our coverage of Heroes Reborn. Our next issue is Squadron Savage, number one. Name of the story is The Queen's Sacrifice. Writer is Ethan Sachs. Artist is Luca Pizzari. Colorist is Carlos Lopez. Letterer is Travis Lanham. Editor is Martin Bureau. We begin in Westchester, New York, with Frank Castle playing catch with his kids. The game of catch, however, is interrupted by the appearance of the assassin of Electra in a helicopter, telling Castle it's time to get back in the game. Castle resists, saying he's retired, but Electra responds, Isn't this reality worth fighting for? We then go to Russia where Elektra is teleported in by the Dark Horse wielder and teleporter Cloak, who has taken her on a shopping trip for supplies from the black market dealer, General Lucan. We can go to an undisclosed shield shooting range where her next operative, Crossbones, is doing some target practice. Not making a distinction, by the way, between the Hydra agent and the hostage in a scene very evocative of men in black actually yes we then go to an, another undisclosed location where the murder hornet is having her memories altered to make her ready for the next mission and finally in the people's republic of chernia the entire team teleports in murder hornet crossbones cloak electra and the punisher they very quickly take out a magic textile manipulator named Revenant, an infiltrated facility where we get Mink, Haywire, Boxfire, Thermite, and Moonglow, all there working for a mysterious handler. There's some fighty fighty. Tyrone Cloak realizes that Moonglow is actually his old partner, Dagger, and that his memory of her being killed by these villains is actually an altered memory that she actually ran away with the villains and was unable to save him in time so he could do the same. There is some more fighty fight. Some of the villains get killed, except for Haywire and Moonglow. We also, Punisher realizes though that his memories have also been altered and he realizes that his family is was not there playing catch them. They are in fact dead, killed in a fight between the Circus of Prime and the Squadron Supreme. Boxfire uses her power to decay Crossfire's armor, and Frank Castle uses that opportunity to put a bullet in Crossfire's, sorry, Crossbone's head. Electra, though, in a scene very reminiscent of her death in the 616 universe, runs her size through Frank Castle before coming to the final confrontation with the big bad, Kang the Conqueror. Kang seems to have Electra on the ropes before saying... The six of us came here to lure you in close. How could the mighty Kang resist a vulnerable opponent? And, of course, you need to lower your force field to get this close, which you just did. 
And Kang's like, six? And the sixth member of the team is revealed as the Winter Soldier, who then puts a bullet through Kang's head, while also getting a laser blast to the face, killing him. But their mission successful, Elektra returns to her handler, who is revealed to be Wilson Fisk, Secretary of Defense. It's then revealed that Elektra's memories also are going to be altered, as the board has to be reset after every game. And we get the new Savage Squadron revealed. Cloak, Foxfire, Elektra, Moonglow, and Murder Hornet. As we come to the end. This so, is a bleak goddamn book. It is bleak. I a thing real I, I realized a thing reading back through it this time while you were summarizing. There is a very specific reason this issue exists. Oh. The Redeemers are from the Grunwald Squadron Supreme. Yes. They are that, that that that's why they're here is is to because this is a Squadron Supreme event and it would be you can't do a Squadron Supreme event without at least evoking some of the stuff from the Grunwald run because the Grunwald run was fairly def, uh, definitive Absolutely. and that run involved that that uh, Grunwald story arc involved behavior modifications. Yep, which is what's going on in this book. Yep, and the Redeemers are essentially. Nighthawk's outsiders to make a DC comparison. Oh, Nighthawk makes a second team that he can use to confront the squadron in the Grunwald run. But yeah, but all of these characters are Grunwald creations from the original Redeemers team. Um, Remnant, uh, Mink, Haywire, Foxfire, Thermite. Uh, the only one who's not is is Moonglow, who is revealed to be Dagger. Mm. Which I thought was fun. I like that. And yeah, I mean, so it's it's on the one hand, it's nice to see a version of those characters from an earlier squadron story sort of repurposed into this reality. I, I appreciate that. It's still probably my least favorite book out of the ones we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. But I don't think are, it's bad. Are Cloak of Dagger are Cloak and Dagger mutants still? That is a good question that I don't know the answer to because they've changed it like five times because uh, if they are this ties into the mutant force issue it, right um they could have been a government asset since since the battle of washington dc right right um so um the mutant status is controversial as recently as 2010 they were not mutants mm-hmm. but that was at the height of marvel not having control over the X-Men movies. And so they were making as few characters as possible mutants. I, I think the, the question would be, and I've not been reading the current crop of X books very much, but if it's, if it's been addressed anywhere, it would be addressed in the post house of X powers of X stuff, the, the Hickman run, because in that run, you can only access Krakoa. If you are a mutant, like people who are not mutants literally cannot go through the portals to get there. So I, I do wonder if it's been touched on in that run. I just don't know. Interesting. That's kind of um, that was the case with I don't know if you remember ship the ship Mm-mm. from X Factor. I do not. It was their headquarters. It was a spaceship that used to belong to Apocalypse. Okay. And then I guess it was inherited by the other team, the Peter David team. Mm-hmm. But it's like it's super intelligent. It could basically create anything they want it to, and it's set up where only a mutant can enter. Mm, interesting. 
Yep. But yeah, so it so it may or may not tie into that. Also, just as an aside, random deep cut in this issue is that Murder Hornet seems to be Rita Damara, who was briefly Yellow Jacket in Marvel Comics. That's who it is. I was wondering which version of Wasp this was. Right. Well, because we we see what's happened to Janet Van Dyne later. Yeah. But but yeah, near as I can tell, it's Rita Damara. That is a deep cut. That's a Roger Stern creation. Wow. And she ends up dying at the oh, she ends up dying at the beginning of the crossing. <laughs> right, right. Well, <laughs> the crossing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the crossing. Yep. But but yeah, that's uh and, and and of course the the what's his name the Russian general guy he is in fact the the character from the Brubaker run who created the Winter Soldier program. I, I figured. Although we know the Winter Soldier is not dead here because he right. gets referenced in another book as still right. existing when it takes place later. Right. And I mentioned Murder Hornet. It it's, seems to be Rita Damara, but it's Rita Damara seemingly combined with Swarm. Swarm the the Nazi beehive, yeah. Which they that's what they should have done with her character. Like <laughs> mur- mur- murder hornet is the best part of this book. Yes, yes. Um, I, I liked her a lot. I also like just the general idea that, of course, Kang knows there's something wrong with the timeline. Yes, that's a that's a clever idea, and that you would essentially need a Suicide Squad to take him out. Yes, and it's smart mixing the Grunwald Redeemers with Ostrander era suicide squad, which is sort of what they're doing here. Yes. With, with Wilson Fisk as, uh, Oh yeah. I didn't even make that connection, but you're right. You're absolutely right. But in fact, we, we talked about, uh, the, the Zemo issue as also being kind of a suicide squad issue. And, and I like this one better than that one. Do you? I, I think I do. And I think it's because the, the other one is more, it's less Suicide Squad and more Thunderbolts versus Justice League, but like Detroit or JLI era Justice League. I like that one better, I think. Really like the Ostrander Suicide Squad vibe, and this one captures that pretty well. So even though it's my least favorite issue of this episode, I, I, I like this issue better than the Zemo issue. It's just so bleak. It is bleak. Because, you know, you get... We, I don't think I talked about it in my thing, but, you know, we get Frank Castle back in his padded cell with the yep. mannequins dressed as his family. Yep. Yep. Which is all kinds sure. of fucked up. Yep. Yep. The board must always be reset, which also that it's a chess game is another like it, that feels very DC like checkmate. You're right. You're which you're is also right. Amanda Waller connected. <laughs> and of course, it's a kingpin. Oh, my God. Fuck. Oh, it's it's clever. It's bleak, yep. but it's clever. It's bleak, but it's clever. They did clever things with it. <laughs> God damn them. So should we move on to something a little bit happier? Yes, please. Okay, well, we have one more issue to talk about. We have Heroes Reborn number six. And so let's take one more break and we'll be back to talk about Heroes Reborn number six right after these messages. Drama. Lust, snark, comedy, heartbreak, creativity, poetry, illicit affairs, rage, revenge, testosterone poisoning, gunshots, sculpture, 
feminine hygiene products, naked car crashes. You know what we haven't had in a long time? And liver. Terry Moore's Strangers in Paradise, the audio adaptation, coming to your ear holes in late 2020 on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. Liver is my life. Dressed this way, she's a Navy wave. But beneath that uniform, she is the Wonder Woman doll. And now you can create your own Wonder Woman adventures with these other dolls. Major Steve Trevor, Nubia, Wonder Woman, Super Foe. Gotcha, Major. Wonder Woman, hurry! I'll save you, Major, as soon as I talk to you, Lucille. Wonder Woman, Major Steve Trevor, and Nubia dolls sold separately by Migo. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our final issue for today is Heroes Reborn number six. Cover date on this is August 2021. The first story, The Last Utopian Meets the Last Son of the Gods, is written by Jason Aaron, penciled by Erica de Urso, inks also by Erica de Urso, colors by Jason Keith, letters by Corey Petit. The editors are Martin Biro, Alana Smith, and Tom Brevoort. Our second story, Drunk History, is written by Jason Aaron, penciled by Ed McGinnis, inks by Mark Morales, colors by Matthew Wilson, letters again by Corey Petit, and the same editorial team. We open with Power Princess in mid-battle with Allgog, and it it's fairly brutal, fairly bloody. Um, Power Princess already bleeding from the mouth, but she makes quick work of Allgog because... She deliberately allowed him to swallow one of her utopian gauntlets, which she can psychically summon back to her wrist. And so it tears through his stomach, disemboweling him as it reattaches to the Power Princess. It's pretty Mm. gross. She defeats the Allgog and deposits him in her statue garden, which is just outside the Statue of Liberty where she lives. Because evidently... She has the power to turn people to stone, which she does with all of her enemies, including Null, the King in Black, the Giantess, Janet Van Dyne, Tigra, the She-Cat, and so on. Power Princess is, however, bored. She is drinking various strange cocktails and liquors that are produced for her by the Siege Perilous, which she calls Perry. She considers inviting Hyperion over, but is worried he would just bore her by talking about children or American history. Um, She reminisces about Namor, who she thinks of as a real man. Uh, She fought alongside him in World War II, but her thoughts are interrupted by supernatural lightning, which she can't trace the source of. She reawakens Hercules, who is part of her statue garden, and he begins laughing at the sound of the lightning. Our princess goes to her... Uh, weapon storage and produces an axe made of a shard of the rainbow bridge and she uses it to transport to Asgard which is just as it was the last time she was there, ruined and lifeless but it is there she finds for the first time this entire story arc, a sober Thor (laughs) he is not fully repowered yet but he is gradually remembering himself and his people he recognizes the, the rainbow fragment in the axe, and he and Power Princess fighty, fighty, fight. 
She stabs him with the no blade, the invisible sword, which causes him to vomit a storm. <laughs> there is more fighty, fighty, fight. As they are fighting, Power Princess reflects on all of the other godlike beings she has killed, uh, including Gore, the god butcher, uh, Jean Grey, the phoenix. She fought alongside Hulk in his gladiator stage, which doesn't make sense with the timeline, really, but will allow it. Yeah. Looks like she fought a celestial of some sort. She is teamed up with what's his name? The Asgardian with the machine gun that Carl Urban played in Ragnarok. If you hadn't asked me, I could have told you. Oh, right? gosh. The executioner. Executioner. That's him. There you go. Which they're doing a bullets and bracelets thing. Yes, they are. Which I, I, I kind of love, but go, keep on moving. <laughs> right. But just then, Power Princess is snapped back to the present because she gets smacked in the face by Mjolnir. And suddenly Thor in, is in his full 616 classic Lee and Kirby look with the long flowing locks and the winged helmet and the, the glowing circles on his vest. Yep. Classic Thor. Yep. And with that, he disappears. <laughs> Power Princess is, is meeting with the other uh, squadron members in... I guess their headquarters is in the Washington Monument? Underneath, probably. Probably. She says, I punched him so hard his beard came off. Because he had a beard when he was in his t-shirt. And when he transforms, he's clean-shaven. Yeah, um, she did. Yeah. Um, Hyperion vows to send him to the negative zone. And Power Princess asks the other squadron members if any of them have heard of the Avengers. Do I talk about this first or, or do the rest of the story? It's a fine Wonder Woman story. That's exactly what it is. It, it reads sort of like it's mirror universe Wonder Woman, right? It, it's like if the Gail Simone Wonder Woman was just a little bit evil. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we see we find out what happens to Tigra here. We do. She got, yeah. she got turned to stone. I wonder if Nighthawk ever realized that his girlfriend was Tigra before she got turned to stone. That's a good question. I don't know. Um, yeah. I enjoyed the Hercules cameo. Yes. Um, I enjoyed the Namor cameo because he's a real man. Yep. Somebody's just slot in very well to mm. the the DC model. Like, oh, of course they put that in there. Right. Like Hercules. Like right. Tiger. Um, and also the Utopian Chain of Veracity. Yep. Lasso Truth. Yeah. Yep. Um, I love the uh, the Rainbow Axe. Yeah. It's a shame we're not actually getting like Marvel Legends figures of this Squadron Supreme. It would be cool. Yep. Get let even just the have, accessories would be cool. Yes. Yes. Like I really want a Nighthawk. I really we there is a Hyperion, but it's not this Hyperion. Right. Like honestly, that should like it should totally be like a Comic Con exclusive or something, a box set of the squadron. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So yeah, fun. Not much to it really, but it's fun. Uh and I, I mentioned this in my summary, but previously we were told that. Hulk was sent to the negative zone right after the first time he became Hulk. So it doesn't really make sense that she fought in the, the planet Hulk storyline because planet Hulk wouldn't have happened. No, but I'll allow it. Cause it makes for a cool visual. It does. It does. The, and the, the fact that she killed Jean gray will come up again another time. <laughs> but meanwhile, there is another story to cover drunk history. So we flash back to the age of Vikings in Iceland where the Utopians are attacking a uh, group of Vikings 
and a very young power princess charges into action and immediately decapitates someone. Just kids get decapitating, folks. It's, it's fun for the whole family. Meanwhile, Thor, who at this point in his history has already been condemned to forget his Asgardian past. He thinks he is human. Uh, he is on Earth. But this time, it, it is a, uh, a horn of mead instead of a walking stick that his powers are locked in. And so he is sitting to the side, drinking and watching as the the violence occurs. We jump forward to Berlin, 1945, where Power Princess has uh, killed Hitler and brought the brought his head to uh, a a the ruins of a bar where the soldiers are all drinking and cheering. Meanwhile, Thor is out on the streets, still drinking from his horn, which never runs dry. Uh, we then jump to much more recently, the bar that we saw Thor in back at the beginning of this event, when uh, Blade approached him, and he falls to the ground, feeling the effects of the God Bomb, which is a reference to a Thor, Thor storyline from several years ago. And Thor, the God Butcher, is fighting Power Princess. We saw a glimpse of this in the first story in this issue, but All Black the Necro Sword has abandoned Gore and is allowing Power Princess to, to wield it instead. And we get a glimpse of, again, a version of something that happened with Thor, where three different versions of Power Princess from different eras of her life have all teamed up to save the day, one of whom is wielding not a Necro Sword, but a Necro Lasso. Mm. Uh, it's kind of cool. It, it looks very much like something you would see in maybe a 90s image comic or even like a Witchblade comic or something. Yeah. And then we jump to the present just now where Thor is in full Asgardian god mode. He remembers himself uh, and what reality is supposed to be. And just then he encounters Echo as the Phoenix who offers to help him fix reality. Yep. Again, it's really fun. It is. And it's it's clever in that it's sort of the Heroes Reborn version of Back in the Lee Kirby days, the backup story in Thor would be a story from Thor's past. Yeah. And they're kind of doing that here. Yeah. Uh, but like, again, I, I, I'm in a situation where I want to see Princess Power, Power Princess and the Invaders as a one shot. Mm-hmm. Like in place of Captain America teamed up with Namor. Yep. Let's show us her killing Hitler. Go for it. I want to see it. Yeah. Yeah. I also wish the art style had changed with each era. Mm. Like I wish the, the 1940s stuff had at least looked like an invaders comic, if not actually a comic from the forties and fifties. Yeah. And then like with, with each jump forward in time, you could modernize the look of the book a little bit. Yeah. But again, we would miss that great Ed McGinnis artwork, I think, which that's true. That's true. And it is good. It is really good, but there's not really much more to it. Cause it, it's, it's, one of the most sort of supplementary second stories of any of them. Like it's not really telling us anything we didn't know. We knew she killed Hitler. We knew yes. that Thor had had his powers locked in his drinking horn. Yep. Like, like it's sort of reiterating things that have come up in other other books, which is fine. It's done well, but it's not new information, really. No, but it is fun. But it's fun. And and I like that last image of the phoenix uh, flying toward him. Yeah. It's the name of this whole crossover. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Even when there's not much to it, it's fun. Even, even like with the last issue, when it's bleak, it's still fun. 
weirdly. Very bleak, bleak fun. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a thing. You, you can have bleak fun. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> it's like those people who like reading like the end comics. Right. Right. I can only take so much of that. Yeah. I, I'm not a fan of like the end books. Because I don't want to see all my favorite heroes die and in horrible, right. miserable ways. Or honestly, the worst of any of those kinds of things was do you remember I think it was Spider-Man Rain? No, we are not talking about that. I know exactly the, what you're talking about. We're not talking yeah. about that. Because because it they were trying to do the Dark Knight Returns for Spider-Man, and it went horribly, horribly wrong. The way they kill Mary Jane in that book is, is offensive. Just offensive, disgusting, and I don't want to talk about it. Fair enough. But I, to me, I, I lump that story in with the end. books. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was thinking of that with there, too. So, um, but so far, so good. We're not quite done yet. We, we have one more episode of a full slate of Heroes Reborn comics. So there's because really, at this point, the Avengers have not reunited. No, <laughs> They are still putting the team together where we where we're leaving off right now. So, Trey, yes. what is your favorite issue from this episode and your least uh-huh. favorite? Okay. Well, I've already s- said my least favorite this episode is Squadron Savage. Okay. Not that it's a bad book. It's fine. Like I say, I liked it fine. But I think it's it's the, my least favorite of, of the five. My favorite, uh, I, we're going to agree on this. We're going to have the same favorite because i'm gonna say double action i'm i'm torn between double action and heroes reborn five the the arkham asylum riff because they're both really good but i think double action does a better job of capturing the moment in time that that kind of story comes from and i wit and you're, you're absolutely right double action is my favorite too and i wish that more books of this crossover went that route Right. Went all in. To be fair, American Knights did too. It actually did go fairly all in on its style. It's just that its style was so close to the present that it's not as noticeable. Yeah. Uh, for my worst, mm-hmm. you know, it, it it was hard for me because um, I'm very, very tempted to say Squadron Savage, but I have to give it to American Knights because mm. wh- who doesn't fucking drink coffee with breakfast <laughs> it's just it's necessary for human existence it just uh, that's why god created but, coffee tray. but you wouldn't but you wouldn't that's, drink coffee with chili right let me, let me, let me, it's why mephisto created coffee tray <laughs> but this is a changed reality maybe in this reality they don't drink coffee at breakfast i don't like this reality anymore trey <laughs> I, I, I fully support the Avengers in ra- raising it. Like, just go for it. Just wipe it out. <laughs> Good stuff. God, coffee and chili. Ooh, that, that sounds gonna terrible. Do, that's going to do bad things to your digestive system later. Yes. Yes. Not a good mix. Not a good Don't mix. recommend it. Do not recommend. Anyway, we do, like you said, still have a few more books to talk about. Before we finish this crossover, and those will be Heroes Reborn Nightwing number one, Heroes Reborn number seven, Heroes Reborn Weapon X and Final Flight number one, and Heroes Return number one. 
on our next episode. Right. And you can reach out to us. Our email address is tombofideas at gmail.com. Uh, do you always have chili and coffee every morning and feel clean as a whistle on the Indian side? Because, <laughs> gosh, damn it. Uh, please let us know. Or, you know, don't actually. But yeah, you can keep that to yourself. But you can let us know what you thought of these issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. You can also reach us on our Twitter. Proud to say we do not have a blue check mark at Tomb of Ideas. Don't say that too loud. He'll give us one to punish us. <laughs> Such a sad little man child. <laughs> we are also at Tomb of Ideas on Instagram. And we are of we are on Facebook at facebook.com slash tomb of ideas. And Trey, That's right. last time I checked, we were still proud members of the Cinepox podcasting group, unless they've kicked us out. Well, I still have access to the Discord, so I think we're still in relatively good standing. Aces. Which means that you can find our entire back catalog, all of our past episodes, all the way back to number one, on cinepunks.com that's cinepunks with an x where you'll also find other great shows such as the carnage report switch of the death nerve and horror business uh, along with some great articles and reviews so check out cinepunks.com and of course tomb believers that means until next time bye 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 you have been listening to the tomb of ideas a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tombers Excelsior! You know, you, you 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 called me out on the first episode. Did I? You said that this was the most recent comics run I've read. That is not true. <laughs> I, I I read the Mark Wade. Um, oh, Batman Finest. Superman. Yeah. Yes. That's a good run. It is so good. Oh, I do recommend go backward a little bit. the The run that came just before it was by uh, Gene Lun Yang, who did yeah. Superman Smashes the Clan. That's a good run too. Uh, he's the one who did the Batman and Superman serial style. The serial. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That that came that came right before the Mark Wade World's Finest run. I read it. Good. So it's it, it was lots of fun. Okay. okay. So so you had read something from 2022. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm cool. I'm hip. I'm with it. <laughs> as as you kids said, like to say. Is it sad that, like, as you were saying that, I was imagining, like, J. Jonah Jameson saying it while chomping a cigar? That depends. You got any pictures of Spider-Man for me? <laughs> uh. Get out!